And this is the message, title for our text today. Be all in. Our text is a strong warning today. And the response to the warning, again, is our title. Be all in. Let's read our text together, beginning in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to go back to verse 5, just to set our context, and then read through our text for today. So we'll be beginning at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Be all in. As I mentioned, our text is one of the warning passages in Hebrews. There are five powerful warning passages within this book. Hebrews' main theme is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that as we've gone through chapter 1 and 2 and seen Jesus' superiority over the angels. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter 3 as we began and saw Jesus' superiority over Moses. And amidst the text presentation of Jesus' superiority are these five warning passages. The first was in chapter 2, back in verses 1 to 4. A perfect parenthesis, sitting right in the midst of the apologetic of Jesus' superiority to the angels. And the point of the warning passages is to get us to pay attention. This is just what the first warning passage says in Hebrews 2.1, where it says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. But we must 
recognize what has been taught to us. Already so early in this book, we have heard the speaking of God. We have heard the speaking of His Son. We have heard the speaking of the apostles and the angels. We have heard from the revelation of the Old Testament and from the revelation of the New Testament. All of what God is speaking to us. And we have to pay attention to what we've heard. Because if we do not pay attention, we will drift away. It is an assurity. And the point here is that amidst the superiority of Jesus, the overarching theme of this book, there are these warnings. There is a responsibility. We have something that we must do as a result of what we have heard. We can't simply hear and walk away. But we must have to understand that there is something that is incumbent upon us. Something which God would have us to do. And this second warning passage actually began in our last message in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. That text was a present warning from the Holy Spirit. A present warning about a past situation. The urgency and immediacy of today where it said, Today if you hear his voice. And the immediacy applied to everyone. Everyone had heard. Both believers and unbelievers. And, and this is all that there is. Is there not? There are no other categories. There are those who know Christ and who believe in him. And there are those who do not know Christ. And therein are unbelievers. Unbelievers have heard. We know that from God's word as he tells us in Romans 1.19 that he has placed it in their hearts. Unbelievers have heard. We know that as believers we have heard for the illuminating power of the Spirit of God dwells in those who are his children. John 14 and verse 26 tells us this where the apostle writes in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So all have heard and all know. And in Hebrews 3, the wilderness generation is used as an example for us, us who knew of others who also knew. Because they knew and they had a responsibility. Had they not seen? These are those who experienced the power of God through the ten plagues upon Egypt. These are those who experienced the protection of the Shekinah glory, creating a wall behind them as they were apparently trapped in front of the Red Sea. And later Moses with his staff parting that sea as they went through and then as the Egyptian soldiers were allowed to follow, God closes the water upon them and destroys the entire Egyptian army with Pharaoh on the other bank watching. They had seen the power of God, the Shekinah glory dwelling with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine the presence of the living God in that way? They knew, and they had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to believe, but they did not believe. 
So they did not enter God's rest. That rest was a physical rest representative of entry into the promised land. That's what we see in Exodus chapter 17 and in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, and in Numbers 14. That there was a rest promised in the land. But then as we looked at Psalm 95, the verses quoted for us in Hebrews 3, 8 through 11, we saw that there was more than a physical rest. We saw that there was a spiritual component and that the text itself showed to us that there were two facets that existed within the rest, that of the physical promise of the land, but a greater spiritual promise of eternal blessing. And indeed, Psalm 95 verse 1 showed us this where it said, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And that joyful singing of Psalm 95 1, it turned into worship and was indeed worship and recognized as such in verse 6 of Psalm 95. But that worship was only for those who were God's people those who heard his voice. And the rest of Psalm 95 and the, the rest of the text which is quoted for us in Hebrews shows that the wilderness generation as a whole did not hear. They were not his people because they did not believe despite what they had seen. So they did not enter the physical rest but more so they did not enter the eternal rest. So now we continue to see how to make sure that we do enter that rest. Not the physical land of Israel, for that was for his chosen nation. But the spiritual rest which continues on to all nations. The spiritual and eternal rest for those who believe. And the way this occurs is for us to be all in. And our first point in verse 12 begins the explanation of how to be all in. Our first point there in verse 12 is be careful. Be careful. Our point is made with the first word of verse 12 where it says take care. The King James Version has take heed and, and the imperative verb is a command to the Jewish audience to be careful. And by application, the same command applies to us. The vernacular here of the, the second person plural imperative verb is, y'all take care. Or more appropriately, all y'all take care. Be careful. Brethren, confirms again that this message is given to the believing portion of the church. And we see that there in verse 12. Take care, brethren. But a question arises. What is the believing portion of the church? What believing portion? Now, I hope this statement catches your attention. And, and you're asking, well, didn't you just say, Pastor, that there's only two groups? There are the believers and the unbelievers, which indeed is the case. But remember that there are three separate audiences that are being addressed in the book of Hebrews. There are all of these within the church of the Jewish community that is being written to. There are the believers. Those who are confirmed in their faith in Jesus Christ and are walking and living according to the word of God and in obedience to its commands. Then there is the second group 
There are the unbelievers who think they are believers. They're in church and they think that they're just fine. They're amongst the congregation and assuming everything is great because they are there. Yet they are not walking in obedience. They are not living by faith. They are simply attempting to put on a religious facade. The believers, the false believers, and then there are the unbelievers, those who are in the church who know that they are not a part of the kingdom of God. This is the same as the church today. Same as the church in all ages, and most sadly it is the same as our church. How great it would be if all of the church were believers how wonderful is a pastor for me to just come before you and exhort and rejoice in our common salvation. Spending time focusing endlessly on the nuances of the revelation of Jesus Christ to come and our common salvation. No need to continue to bring the gospel in a powerful and in a dominant way because all would know Christ. But such is not the case. So that which is to be careful about is what follows next in our text in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice carefully what's happening here. He says some have an evil, unbelieving heart. Now I have a question for you. Does that mean that believers can have an evil, unbelieving heart? He addressed them as brethren. What do you think? Can a believer have an unbelieving heart? No, of course not. We are secure in Christ. Those who are Christ are His eternally. Nothing can snatch them from His hand. They are His forever. So what is being spoken about here? Who is he writing to in this text? Well, beloved, it is that second audience. It is those who think they are believers and are not. The false believers, if you will. It's the same in the first warning passage that said, pay attention that you not drift away. Will true believers drift away? Absolutely not. But those who are not true believers absolutely will. He's writing to the false believers in these warning passages. And beloved, this is a critical point of the book of Hebrews. As you go through this text, if you don't recognize, and because these warning passages, as strong as they are, they are going to keep ramping up. By the time we get to Hebrews chapter 10, if you are an, an unbeliever who is playing church, it's going to feel like you're being beat on the side of the head with a, a, a shovel. Because they are powerful. And they continue to increase in strength. He is writing to these false believers. But the result of those with an unbelieving heart is the same as it was back in Hebrews 2.1. They fall away from the living God. The verb fall away here means to depart. And it comes from a very familiar Greek word if we will consider its pronunciation. You can hear it in the Greek word apostasia. Do you hear that in our English word? Apostasia, apostasy. Apostasy. To defect, to desert, to abandon that which one knows. To defect from the living God. 
The living God is a phrase that is emphasizing the fact that we have one and only one true God and he is the only one that is living. Is Muhammad living? Is Buddha living? No, they are dead. How about the Dalai Lama? Is he living? Well, only because they continue to appoint new ones each time another dies. The only religion with a living God is Christianity. Even Judaism has no living God for they reject the only true God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the living God. And it is an evil and unbelieving heart that will fall away because these people think that they're believers. And we too think that we are believers. So the question becomes, how do we know? It's a critical question. How do we know if we truly believe? Or if we are simply self-deceived? Can we look at our own heart? This is the test in verse 12, is it not? He says that be careful that any of you not have an evil, unbelieving heart. Can we look at our own heart? What does Jeremiah 17.9 tell us? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Is Jeremiah just speaking to unbelievers in this text? Not at all. The verses immediately prior to this tell us that it is all mankind. In fact, verses 7 and 8 reference the blessed man who trusts in the Lord. The believer, even the believer, cannot trust in his heart. The heart is not to be relied on. That is my heart, that is your heart, beloved. Do you say things that you shouldn't say? Do you think things that you shouldn't think? Do you do things that you should not do? And do these make you shudder inside to consider? Clearly, knowing the heart is not the answer. Is it being in church among the body of believers? You might say, I go to church religiously. Be careful if there's anything you do in your life that you do religiously, for it may be bordering on legalism. We do it because we are prompted and directed and in love with that that God has placed for us in the body of Christ. Well, what is the context of our verses? It is the wilderness generation. It is, it is those who are in the very presence of the living God, day and night. Could you be any more in church? Absolutely not. It isn't being in church at all. But beloved, there is a simple answer. And it's by answering one little question. Do you obey? Four little letters. Do you obey? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16 and 17, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Fruit evidence of our obedience. James said in James 2.18, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
We are not saved by our works, but we are showing our faith. We are constantly expressing our faith by those works, by our obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, i.e. you will obey him. In 1 John 2, 3, and 4, the apostle whom Jesus loved writes, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He goes on in 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And the Lord himself in John 3.36 writes, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The answer is obedience. Be careful that you are obedient. Does this mean that we are saved by our works again? Absolutely not. Salvation is through grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. It also doesn't mean that we will obtain sinless perfection. No, we, we will always sin, but we can obey more perfectly all the time. We can better understand God's word and recognize when we are apart from obedience to it and seek to grow in that. But if we are to avoid an evil and unbelieving heart which falls away from the living God, then we must obey. In, as we obey, we guide our hearts. As we obey, we guide our minds. Our minds and our hearts in and of themselves will lead us astray. But if we stay by the word of God and continue to guide our hearts and guide our actions, as we saw in our scripture reading from 1 Peter 1, then we will move our hearts and our minds to obedience in the living God. So first, we must be careful. And secondly, in our next point, we must be concerned. Be concerned. Verse 12 reflects the individual responsibility to obedience. And now verse 13 moves to the corporate responsibility. Look at verse 13 with me. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The initial imperative verb again is a command, and it calls us to be encouragers. Some translations read exhort, which is another good translation and rendering, either of these words, for encourage or exhort. The root meaning here is to call someone alongside. Or to call someone to yourself. The idea of asking or even begging is persistent and inherent in this verb. It can be speaking in an authoritative manner, such as an exhortation. Or it can just be an encouraging and, and warm and loving embrace to draw someone and to speak with them about the truth of God's word. But the key component is that of a vocal charge or expression. It is speaking. This is the spoken word. 
we must bring forth from our lips the truth of God's word to encourage one another. The noun form of this verb is paraclete, which is used in John 14, 26, which I read earlier to you. And it refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as the one who encourages, who exhorts believers, who stirs in our hearts and in our minds to know when we are not following and not doing as we should. This is the role that we are to take as we encourage, as we paracaleo, as we call alongside one another day by day as long as it is still called today. Notice that it isn't a one-time event. But it is something that is ongoing. There is a, a frequency that is to be exhibited with this. Beloved, we need one another in the body of Christ. Over 60 times in the New Testament, we are commanded with the one another's of Scripture. Listen to just a few of them. Encourage one another. Stimulate one another. Bear one another's burdens. Show tolerance to one another. Be kind to one another. Be subject to one another. Love one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Comfort one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Serve one another. Greet one another. Have fellowship with one another. Just a few of the many ways in which we are to express encouragement and exhortation. Not only is this an ongoing action day by day, but notice there's an urgency to it. While it is still called today, it isn't just something to engage in at some point or of another. I've, I've done that once. I can check that off my list. It is an ongoing day by day action that is to be done today. Why this urgency? Why the necessity of the repeated action because of the consequences that we see at the end of verse 13 where it says so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin there's our answer there's the need for the urgency and the expedience of this command because of the deceitfulness of sin sin is deceitful beloved it will trick you we heard the most wonderful testimony this morning from Shane Evans in our, in our equipping hour class about the deceitfulness of sin and the way that it had paralyzed this man in his life. You've heard my testimony, which is of similar kind. Sin is deceitful. You'll convince yourself that it's no big deal, that I'm all good. Sin's not a problem in my life. Look at me. I dress up good. Got a shirt and a tie on. I got my jacket. I'm looking good. Sin's no problem here. This house is all swept clean. Really. We know better than to look at the surface. surface. I've, I, I've, I've heard men make this very statement. They've said, you know, I'm never going to have time for proper Bible reading and prayer and we all struggle with this, so let's just realize that we can't do it, and let's stop beating ourselves up about it. Really? What a notion that is. 
Let's not worry about the Bible. This thing's just kind of hard. Yes, that's a good acknowledgement. Let's just concede that we can't do it and let's quit trying. Are you kidding me? God's word is all about trying, all about driving us forward, all about helping us see that we fall short every day. But that he exhorts us to continue. He moves us forward. He tells us to push ahead. What did Paul say? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching ahead towards the upward call and the prize of Jesus Christ. Well, that has to be our lives. Sin is deceitful. Yeah, you'll never be good enough. So just quit. Stop trying. This is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And what does Satan come to do? To kill and to steal and to destroy. How easy is his job of destruction if we just quit, throw up the white flag, okay, I'm done. And if sin is left unchecked, it will cause us to be hardened. We begin to quit or we just give in to sin. We convince ourselves that it's okay. Everybody does it. So it's no big deal. Everybody lies a little. I mean, everybody's kind of tweaking their taxes some, so what's the big deal if I do? Everybody is taking advantage of, of that one special thing and, and, and illegally using their coupons. What's the big deal if I do? Everybody lusts a little. What's just a look? I mean, it's God's creation. I'm just appreciating what God has made pastor who I was saved under spoke about another pastor who made just such a statement and had fallen in immorality in about six months. Surely it's okay if I do it too. Everybody else is. Beloved, this is another of Satan's lies and if you give in to it, you will be hardened by it. Do you ever remember me encouraging you towards discipleship? All the time, Right? I mean, this was our whole first study on Titus. Four months in discipleship at the center. This verse is the discipleship necessity. Beloved, we need one another. Why do we encourage you to participate in Titus 2? Why do we encourage you to participate in the men's and ladies' Bible studies? So you can get a little more knowledge? No! So that you can grow in the Lord, so that you can form relationships, so that you can move beyond the blessed fellowship that we have on a superficial level to the nitty gritty of the life of being obedient to the Lord. We need one another in that. I need you and you need me and we need one another. Because without one another we are sitting ducks for the enemy. Our adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What kind of target are you if you're out there by yourself? How much better are you when you have that fellowship, that accountability, and you are talking about the deep things of the Lord. You are talking about the ways that you are struggling in your life. Beloved, we all have to be about this. If we don't engage in some of this, we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, just as surely as those of the wilderness generation. And those that are hardened will continue in that sin. And eventually, as Romans 1 tells us, God will give them over to the things which are not proper to do, give them over to a depraved mind. And then the church will be hurt 
Because then we'll enter into a Matthew 18 discipline situation. And we'll have to come before the sinning brother or sister. Or we'll have to put them out of the church. And it will hurt because it will be ripping the fabric of this body, of this fellowship. If we would be obedient to this text, there would never, ever be a need for a Matthew 18 church discipline situation. Because we'd be so involved with the lives of one another that we would be talking about sin. We'd be talking about our shortcomings. We'd be helping one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must be concerned for one another. Concerned enough to encourage. Concerned enough to exhort. Concerned enough to speak about sin in one another's lives. Let me share with you a couple verses that apply to this very concept directly and in the same words and from the same book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.24 where it says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. If this text tells us to encourage one another, Hebrews 10.24 says, here's how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Wonderful. What's verse 25 say as we follow? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It tells us here, that we're to be speaking with one another about our corporate gatherings in the church. Does this mean that when we see someone miss a Sunday service, that we're to go out after them and say, you were not in church Sunday? No. That's dead legalism. It tells us that we're to go out to that one and to each one, and we're to say, you know, I know you're missing an occasional Sunday morning, but you're missing every Sunday evening. And you're missing every Wednesday evening. Why are you ignoring the corporate gathering of our body? Is this not the most special place? Is this not the place of safety? Is this not the place of receiving the precious word of God, the bread of life, and interacting with one another? We talk about this need and this command to encourage one another. Do you realize that if we came to church when the church is open, you would have four to five times a week to interact with one another? I'm too busy. I don't have time. Have you ever encouraged another member of our church about attendance? Again, not legalistically, but recognizing the patterns of sin by which we are deceived and that create a hardness in our hearts. Our first point was the individual responsibility to be careful. Our second was our corporate responsibility to be concerned. And as we consider this test of obedience from our first point, that of the believer and his obedience, remind yourselves of this test of obedience at the beginning of verse 13. It is an imperative verb. It is a command. A command to encourage, to exhort. So either you're obedient to the command or you are disobedient to the command. Are you being concerned 
Are you encouraging, exhorting, speaking, and doing so daily and in earnest? There is no middle ground. Again, this necessitates active discipleship. Beloved, it's when we're obedient personally and corporately that we're all in for the Lord. And we have one more point that confirms what it means to be all in in verses 14 and 15. And it is to be committed. Be committed. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Verse 14 begins with the familiar term partakers. We've seen it back in chapter 2 and verse 14 and also in chapter 3 and verse 1. And it means to take on something which is not natural to you. We saw that in 2.14 as Christ became a partaker in flesh and in blood. It was something that was not natural to him. He was born as a man, but he existed eternally as deity. He took on, he partook of flesh and blood so that he could associate with us. In 3.1, we became partakers of a heavenly calling. It was not of our nature. We had no right to accept or expect that we would receive a heavenly calling. Something completely foreign. And now, in 3.14, we are partakers of Christ. Certainly, this is the greatest blessing. And something totally contrary to our nature. What could be more foreign? We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, as Ephesians 2.3 tells us. But now we are partakers of Christ. Ephesians 3 and 17 tells us that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. The Lord himself said this also in John 14.23, where Jesus said in John 14.23, he said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. We will dwell with him. The Father and Son dwelling in the one who loves and who seeks after the Son. We know from our reading in 1 Peter that we are inheritors. We have inherited an imperishable Blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What could be more foreign to our nature? Indeed, we are amazed at being partakers of this. But notice there in verse 14, it is a conditional situation. That means that something has to happen. It isn't automatic. It says, if we hold fast. That's the same condition we saw back in Hebrews 3.6 at the beginning of our reading, where we are members of Christ's household if we hold fast our confidence. And you might remember that word hold fast is a nautical term. It refers to a ship staying on course. As if you're a plane flying out there somewhere and flying towards the cross. And the winds are blowing across and so you have to turn the plane to come into the wind so that you end up at your destination. 
It's as if you're a ship being thrashed by the waves, heading towards the cross, and those waves are bashing against you and moving you off course, and you have to continually keep veering to stay on track. So it means to stay on course, but we have a responsibility to hold fast. This is what it means to be committed. The winds of contrary doctrine will continue to blow, continue to push you off of the path. They will continue to say, you know, I know the Bible says that homosexuality is an abomination, but really that was just a particular thing to a particular people at that time. It wasn't a broad range because we know that those homosexuals, they are born that way and they can't help it. And God would never do that. Well, you're right, God would never do that. Because they are not born that way. They are living in their sin as surely as each and every one of us are. Their sin is no different. We just understand and seek to change our lives. Seek to stay on course. Seek to continue to point to the cross. But those doctrinal winds will blow. Seeking to push you off of the course of truth. The waves of sin and temptation will seek to, to move us from our path of righteousness and sanctification. It's just too hard. I, I, I'm tired of continuing to point towards this. I, I can never get the Bible reading. I can never get the prayer time. I, you know, so why do I keep trying? We are to hold fast. And notice what we're to hold fast to. The beginning of our assurance. That term means the foundation of our faith. The original premise which brought us to Christ. The foundation of our faith. Well, beloved, what is your foundation of your faith? This is another point where doctrine becomes so vital. We know our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? These are the reformations of scripture, the solas of scripture, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola Christos, by Christ alone, sola scriptura, by the word alone, and sola theos, by God alone. These are what guide and drive us. But some would contend with that. Some would say that they come to Christ, they choose Christ. I have made that decision. This is what Arminian theology is all about. Not Arminian, that is a people. James Arminius believed that he chose to come to God. Believe texts like Joshua 24, 15, where Joshua says, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Wonderful text. But it can't be taken out of context to believe that we are those who choose God. For we know that the scripture teaches otherwise, and Ephesians being a powerful expression of that. But think about that. Think about if they were correct. If that doctrine was correct that said that you chose to come to Christ. Well, what would that mean your foundation of your faith was? It would be your choice, right? Well, what if you decided to choose otherwise? Do you ever change your mind? Do you ever find yourself just a little fickle? Moved by your emotions? We all do. If I choose Christ then, then I might not choose him the next time. And where is my foundation of faith? Or maybe you just decide you were wrong then, and so now I'm going to make another choice. 
but we know that the foundation of our salvation is grace. It's Christ choosing us. The beginning of our assurance is not our decision. It is God's decision. So when he calls us back to look at the beginning of our assurance, we look back to Christ. I don't look back at the mirror of myself and say, oh, what a wonderful job I did in making this decision. Say, what an idiot I am for taking 37 years to get there. No, we come back to grace, Christ choosing us. Beloved, we must continually return to this foundation. This is what we are committed to. If we hold fast that beginning, we have to keep coming back. We have to keep coming back to where Christ brought us to himself. Keep coming back to that original fire. Keep remembering where Christ called you by name. And said, you are my child. Come to me and serve and worship and obey me. That is our foundation. That is the unswerving rock which we must be moored to at all times. Beloved, we must continually return to this foundation. This is what we must be committed to. Christ's work in you. We must embrace this firm until the end. Until the end of our days on this earth or until the return of our Savior. What a blessing. Why does the scripture say that blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones? They have stayed the course. They have gone back to their foundation and continued to point to Christ. We must embrace this firm until the end. This is totally contrary to quitting because it's hard or because we're not succeeding. No, come back to the foundation. Yes, I know I'm not where I want to be. I keep moving to this side and to that side. I'm never where I want to be. I'm never pointing towards the cross. Go back to the foundation. Keep moving ahead. And then in verse 15, we're reminded of the warning from verses 7 and 8, which we've heard before. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Beloved, have you heard the voice of God? This is a scary warning because it applies to those in the church who think they're believers. And the end result is the same as those of the wilderness generation, those that would not enter God's rest. And it seems so clear to us today as we look to that generation and see their rebellion and their apostasy, but it wasn't always this way from the beginning. Go back and read Exodus 15, and you'll hear quite a different tune. Let me just read the first few verses of Exodus 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord, this just as they've come out of the Red Sea. And I said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Do these sound like the words of rebellion? Do these sound like the song of an apostate? Not at all. But we know that so also it is for the church. Why does the scripture say in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. 
Judgment came first nationally to the children of Israel. And judgment will come first to the church because of those who are within who say they are believers and are not. It was the wilderness generation who was for 40 years consumed with millions of deaths in the wilderness. By some estimates, over 75 funerals a day. You know, beloved, if we embark on a class 4 whitewater trip, we need to be all in. Or might get hurt or even killed. But if we're not all in in our walk with Christ, we could be eternally separated from Him. But it takes that first step. It takes us recognizing the gospel. It takes us to come back to the beginning, to the foundation of our faith, and say, have I understood Christ? Have I repented of my sin? And understood that I am separated from Him, that I am not all right, that I'm not doing okay in my walk, that I need Him every moment, that I need His church, that I need His word. You see, we must recognize that we are separated from Christ and because of our sin, eternally damned to hell. And then it takes a continual return to that foundation of Christ for those of us who do know Him to recognize we need continued obedience. We need to be better at discipleship. We need to be better at loving one another, at truly ministering in each other's lives. Checking our hearts as a function of our obedience. Looking at the commands of Scripture and not just reading across them, but saying, is this me? Am I obedient to God's Word? Not him, not him, not her, but am I? And am I sharing with one another my struggles, that there are others that are praying for me and drawing me before the throne of grace, that I might grow in my obedience? and actively encouraging our brethren and doing this through our ongoing discipleship to further confirm our actions of obedience. Because in this way, we confirm that we are committed to Christ and that we are all in in our walk with Him. Beloved, this warning applies to every one of the three groups in the church. To the unbeliever, it is a call to know Christ. And I would call to you today, I would plead with you to open your eyes to the truth of the outstretched arms of the living God who desires to draw you into himself and to give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To the false believer, I would say, stop. Assess yourself. Check your heart. Check your attitude and your actions. Where is your obedience? Partial obedience, beloved, is disobedience. And to the true believer, yet excel still more. Grow in your love for God. Be greater at reaching out to this wonderful body of believers that God has placed you in. Use the giftedness that He has poured in you through His Spirit. That this church might become a yet stronger lighthouse in this community. How desperate is our world? more and more each and every day. And even the events of the last days and weeks have shown us this so clearly. And no matter which group you're in, there's work for you to do as a result of what you've heard. Are you ready? I pray, beloved, that you are. Because we each need to be all in.